Thank you guys so much for joining with us uh, for a, a special episode of Rewinding the Week. This episode is brought to you by Rewinding the Week with K&J and in partnership with the Rainbow History Project. This is for the Oral History Archives, which are a key component in helping members of our community to record their stories. Eyewitness accounts of what we've seen and experienced provide a valuable resource to researchers and future generations to understand our past and how we arrived where we are today. This episode, I will be interviewing the founder and president of the Gay Professional Men of Color in Washington, D.C., Derek Petit. The Gay Professional Men of Color organization aims to provide respectful and positive spaces where gay, bisexual, trans men, and questioning professional men of color can come together with like-minded individuals while creating lasting bonds through programming that educates, empowers, and enriches the LGBTQ community. Thank you, Derek, for joining with us today. Take a listen, my friends. Have a good day. All right. Hello. Today is Monday, June 14th, 2021. I am Jamal Gordon. I am a board of director for the Rainbow History Project. And today I will be the narrator giving the oral history interview for Derek Petit, who is the president and founder of the Gay Professional Men of Color in Washington, D.C. How you doing, Derek? Doing well, Jamal. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, for um, the interview, I want to just give everyone a brief introduction about the gay professional men of color and why it's important to have this oral history with you. Is that okay? Yes, sure thing. All right. Awesome. Uh, Derek Petit is the founder of the Gay Professional Men of Color in Washington, D.C. The Gay Professional Men of Color is an organization that aims to provide respectful and positive spaces where gay, bisexual, trans men, and questioning professional men of color can come together with like-minded individuals while creating lasting bonds through programming and educates, empowers, and enrich the LGBTQ community. Their slogan is, we are the leaders we've been waiting for. To learn more, go to www.gpmcdc.org. Thank you, Derek. So Derek, I wanna get to know you a little bit more before we dive into the organization. Um, where are you from? And if you don't mind telling us, what year were you born? So, because I'm May 22, I guess I'll be born in 1999. So I'll leave that. But I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, born and raised um, in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans. So that, and across the canal, for those of whoever hears it later on, they'll know what that means if they're from New Orleans. Awesome. And how long have you lived in Washington, D.C.? So I've lived in Washington, D.C., in the DMV area, I guess, from... so. July 3rd, 2013. So I was the middle school teacher and my contract ended on June 30th, 2013. And I drove up and it took me two days, of course, to drive a moving truck and tow my car 
through the mountains. It took me through the Carolinas, I guess. And um, so July 3rd, 2013 was my independence day. <laughs> so you kind of did like a road trip to come here. I had to, I was carrying, up, you know, moving up here for, to attend law school. And um, it was just, a, it was just an arduous journey. And I just, it was, I, yeah, it takes a lot out of you to drive that far that long. And so, um, you know, but I'm grateful that I'd made the move and I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to, 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 to come up this way and to find myself. Awesome. I'm glad you did. And that's a long hour drive because, you know, I drive yeah. from Richmond to Richmond sometimes to and back and I can't do more than two hours. Uh, so kudos to you. Yeah. Uh, say you went to law, exactly. law school. Uh, what school did you attend? So I attended Howard University School of Law. Um, okay. in DC. Awesome. Cool. As they say, HU. You know. <laughs> uh, when and where did you feel comfortable identifying yourself by your sexual orientation? Uh, yeah. October 2013. So, so by that point, um, so I take it if you're watching this and you, you know, you can guess that that 1999 was not the true year I was born, but I, you know, at 30 then, I had not come out. I'm from a religious background, a Baptist, and matter of fact, Southern Baptist background. And, you know, of course, in that teaching, there is no such thing as anything but straight. Um, so not even women preaching in, my, in that faith. So let alone, you know, a man loving another man or a woman love another woman or both you know it's just it's so as a teacher i truly felt that i could not come out um you know i didn't and i would say come out i'm gonna, I'm gonna rephrase that i did not admit to myself until october 2013. so it's not like i knew and i was keeping a secret i you know had the urges i had the feelings but i also prayed the to pray to try to pray to get away and um it wasn't until i got into this area that i began to see couples expressing themselves outwardly i begin to see couples that normalize living in same gender loving relationships and that made me feel more and more comfortable to be who i knew i was on the inside just hadn't admitted it to myself and so i um started law school still you know, fighting a good fight, and I and I begin to kind of it began to kind of overwhelm me. And I believe in October 2013, I met up with my what I consider to be my gay moms, basically Amber Thomas at the time, um, Amber Mason at the time, who was dating Denise Thomas. That was on your second date. I asked Amber, "Can I speak with you?" And she said, "Okay, well, you got to come to you know um, Laurel's on Connecticut, which is no longer there, but." I came and I said, uh, Amber, I think I'm gay. And she said, okay. And it was no surprise, no shock, but yet it wasn't, and it wasn't like she just could tell, but it's just, you know, she's been, you know, Amber as a lesbian has just, you know, she's, she was in the life longer than me. And so she understood what the process meant. And so she and Denise kind of talked me through it and helped me develop a process by which I begin the process of coming out on that day. So it didn't all happen that day. It was like there were no announcements. No confetti, no rainbows, but uh, the process started that day. 
Awesome. It's good that you had that support system and someone to um, talk to about your life and wanting to be who you are and be comfortable in your skin. Uh, have you had to be that support system for someone else? Certainly. So in Gay Professional Man of Color, if in our mission statement, it says that you know, we are a group made up of gay, bi, trans men, and questioning men of color. So we have several brothers who do affiliate with us at times who have not determined what they are. You know, and they and some of them, they don't affiliate, but they come to the programming. And, you know, I know that it's a long journey. Sometimes it does not, it's not going to happen, you know, when you're in high school and college or even many years after. We have a member who had a family and was married to a woman for 15 years, and he came out um, later in life. So it's a process, and that's why we have the questioning piece, because the more you normalize living your truth and authenticity, the more you become comfortable, the more others become comfortable. So you begin to be a model for them. And that's basically what we are to some men who are questioning whether, and some of them, you know, decide, you know, I think I still love women, or I think I, yeah, and and it's just a, it's a, it's I guess we're learning now. It's a spectrum. So, um, I've been that to several people, and I try to do the same thing Amber did for me. Is I told them about you know my experience. I tell them potential outlets that they may want to try. You know, potential venues they may want to visit, and then they take it. There's one member right now who he was another organization that. Uh, I was a part of, he came to me and and told me about his sexuality or what he was experiencing in, I want to say, January of 2020. And, you know, nothing, I, you know, and I said, it's going to be on your time. So whenever you want to talk and you want to, and we didn't talk about it. I didn't speak about it ever again. And of course, 2020 hit and, you know, and it took out a lot of social interactions. And we still interacted online, a number of us, because he was another organization I was in. And so around November is when, you know, it, it came up again. And, you know, I offered to say, you know, if you feel like you're ready, you know, if you want to talk to this person, I gave him some people that he could talk to, you know, and can, can guide him through certain things. He was open to that. And it took him that time to, to really kind of focus in. And, and now he's a member, but it took, it, you know, it just takes a process because when you come out, your family's coming out, right? Your whole friend units are coming out. That's one of his big, his biggest drawbacks that he was looking, he was, uh, he was scared of is that his, not only his family, but especially his friends would look at him differently and view him differently and he would lose them. And I've always been of this mindset and it's been proven. God will always give you a family. And, you know, if we've learned one thing from the show Pose, you know, it can come in many different ways. And this also happens negatively sometimes when people join street gangs. One of the reasons they join gangs, I'm a former teacher, they join gangs, cliques, is because they're looking for a family. I've had students come to me many times and, you know, say, hey, you seen my son? Is he in there? It's like, your son? And he's talking about a student that's two years younger than him that's in my class. But in his mind, that's a part of his family because his real family wasn't giving him what he needed. 
So same thing in the LGBT community, same thing that we are trying to do in GPMC. And the same thing I want to do is be that family for that person that is scared. They haven't lost some of them, but they're scared that it's going to happen. I'll let them know, you know, if that happens, we're here. You know, but don't assume the worst. Give the people the opportunity to uh, to to live with you in your new truth. Awesome. That, that is great. Uh, you mentioned that you're from Louisiana and um, the Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have similar roots, not from uh, Louisiana, but Richmond, Virginia. Um, and we both live in the DMV area. Uh, we are in organizations that empower the LGBTQ uh, community. So how is it going back home after you had this DC life and, and you have the rainbows and the pride yeah. how you going back home with your family in the Southern black church district? <laughs> uh, are you still Derek Petit as we see in DC or does that change? I know for me, sometimes I kind of like turn tone it down just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is your experience like? It's so it used to be that way. Well, one, it, I guess it wasn't that way because I didn't go home. So it, my experience is a little different that we, we had Hurricane Katrina happen and, in 2005. And so the home that I knew and grew up in was washed away. And it has not returned. Um, that is, I don't think a city can come back. The, the wilderness that I knew and grew up in is no longer there. now. There's my family there. You have, you know, a number of remnants of it. But all I do is, you know, I go back and I reminisce of what used to be here, what used to be there, what was once was. And so that was one thing. So even before I moved to DC, when I was in Baton Rouge, which was an hour and some change away teaching, I didn't go home as much because there wasn't much for me to go home to because the rebuilding and things. So I already began to kind of detach. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to the DMV and living out was amazing, and so I still didn't go home. And when I did go home, it's very short. You know, I land on a Friday night, I'm making air on a Sunday morning, you know, something like that. Um, but going home, the last time I went home, I brought my partner, Vince. And that was an experience because that was the time where now the family. Now, here's the Here's the God working part. Because again, we back, we, you know, we that that faith, so we can attest to this, right? So in 2018, um, I started dating Vince, and somehow, and at the same time, I decided that my mother, I wanted my mother to come up for Thanksgiving this year. So this would be the first time she'd be in the DMV, or matter of fact, outside Louisiana for Thanksgiving in her life. So he came up for Thanksgiving. I planned it already before I met Vince. And so I, uh, you know, started dating Vince, April 2018. And it so happened that off chance, I met his mother in the midst of that time, which is early, you know, for me, parents in this, in this community. Mm-hmm. And his mother, um, his, mother's, his mother's mother, his grandmother was moving from a one house to another. And so she wasn't gonna be able to do Thanksgiving that year. So it just so happened that, you know, my mother was up here for Thanksgiving and Vince did not have a place to go for Thanksgiving nor his mother. So I brought them to, to my house. And so the mothers met 
and we had only been a couple of months into the relationship. And they got a chance to, and my mother got a chance to meet him and see, you know, because sometimes it's so abstract and you grew up in this religiousness that you don't see the people in it. You just see the stories and Sodom and Gomorrah, but you don't understand that there are people and there are love here. And if you love me as your son and you see me more happy than you ever seen me, and that's what happened. So that's Thanksgiving 2018. I fast forward to Christmas 2019, which is the last time I went home around the time, December, Vince's birthday is December 15th. We went home and we were there. We, I went home and we were there on my on his birthday. And by this point, my mother had got a chance to meet him. She got a chance to get to know him over the over the next year and some change, right? Um, from just November 2018 when she met him to December 2019. So that's over a year of seeing us live through pictures, speaking to him, all these different things, right? And so it brought in the rest of my family. She became the conduit, the rest of the family getting accepted. If your mother can, can get it, the rest of your family can get on board. And so when we got to the house, my grandmother met us outside, hugged us both, and then walked us into the house together home and home. And so and now my grandmother, again, is approaching 90. So the idea is if she can accept this, if not only accept it, but love it, love us, then no one can say anything. And they did not. And they actually celebrated Vince like he was one of the, the, the kids. And it was a great experience. And I appreciated that. Um, and that, that, that allowed me to really feel like I had a home, you know, and then of course 2020 hit. And so we weren't able to go back in, you know, more, but, um, that only happened really when I started, um, dating and people get to get to see a person, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't abstract. Well, he's gay. We don't know what that means. You're going to wear a dress now. You're going to do long hair now, you know, and sometimes that's the case and that's going to be okay too. Right. But at the same time. If you love this person, we got to get past looking for titles. If you love this person, you're going to love them through it. Right. Awesome. That is well-spoken. And like you said, that's kind of early meeting the family, you know, especially yeah. in our uh, yeah. community. Um, some of them not even out in our family and yeah. still dating. And so for you to have that experience and living your truth with it and how you mentioned your grandmother at the age of 90 who seen it all you know and experienced mm -hmm. it all and thanks to welcome you with open arms like that gives us so much hope um to be hopeful for the future um in louisiana and in the south and that's even the prayer here at <laughs> that's the prayer i mean i think new orleans had one of their first prize recently you know, the Orleans is one of those odd cities where it's known as a party city. You know, that one of those theme songs is Rebirth Brass Bands, Do What You Wanna. You have artists like Big Frida and yeah. Katie Rear. You have mainstay artists, you know, who come from there. And yet the lifestyle, the not even in the life of it is not as accepted. They love the show, but not the life. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the issues that people get shocked at when they go down there. It's like, oh, wait a minute, there's not a lot of... Yeah, because New Orleans is a big religious city, Catholic city, a lot of parochial schools. Right. And so outside of Mardi Gras and certain other parties, Essence Fest, it's really a religious 
city and they want to, they you know, they want to kind of party and they want to go worship and, and to live your truth all the time. They're not used to that, and especially as a black person. Um, in New Orleans, you know, that's a proud black city and they're just not used to it. And um, that's something that, that's changing, I believe. And um, I have a number of friends who are living out. I have one friend who's actually new in high school and he's been married to his partner for 10 years. And I mean, they've been, yeah. And they've stayed in New Orleans and I look to them, you know, because I, they, they stayed in it. You know, I had to leave to go and to find the courage. Mm -hmm. And they stayed through it, and um, and they're doing their thing, and I enjoy watching them. That's that's awesome. Um, and like you mentioned, uh, people want the culture of the music, the yes. um, attire, the go girl, go get it, yeah. you know, but not engage in the social change that is necessary for it to be more than just let's say June, you know, not exactly, um, but <laughs> all the twelve months of of, of not just somewhere I can party and they're going to have the festivals and the parades. I'm yeah, gonna get look, how fun, look how festive. Yeah, like I feel, oh, it's cute. It did go back to just being, doing nothing, you know, yeah. or that to be something that is engaging. Um, and it's also taught, you know, um, in the public and in schools. So. And that's the next bastion. Schools, Parents, and this is my teaching background, parents are not rational when it comes to their kids. I don't know any parent that is. You know, many parents, it takes them a long time to, to wake up to learn that their child has become an independent being. And that's for the good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what makes the mother run into a, house, a burning house to save her child? You know, it's not irrational, you know, but because the love that she has. So, so when it comes to parents being and children you know being around adults that are gay you know their mindset immediately goes to things that they know are untrue well he may he may be a pedophile he may be well the situation is this some of the biggest pedophiles in the world have uh you know straight acting you know a family men and women you know, um, one of the issues I had in, in Baton Rouge, we had several uh, female teachers, um, predominantly white, who were arrested, a slew of them for, for um, you know, molesting black boys. You know, now these boys were 15 and 14 in high school, and this happened a lot in Louisiana. I don't know if it happened, like three in a row. And it just would make the news one day and be gone the next day. And, you know, people would look at it and say, why is the boy complaining? You know, and people don't understand that that's the that's that's the pedophile. You know, you have Chris Brown and these other stars who speak about being, you know, molested as children by these women and you know, or whatever. And it's like they don't even look at it that way. But you have two gay men loving each other, living, and parents, you know, have been taught something all their lives and they equate one with the other, and it's like, well, you know, and that's a problem. And so it's a fear. It's a fear, you know, and you know, you don't want to. And so I, I think that it's just a hard life to live in that fear of the teacher's going to do this. I mean, you know, really, you know, that's a, that's a major problem. And it's hard to fight those things. So, you know, we, we got to keep working and building towards that. And so when I say that to say that parents can know one thing and can, but 
you know, emotionally based on their long history of what they've been told and taught, you know, they can go opposite way. And so sometimes it just takes a long time for them to learn their children and learn. So that goes to loving their, their child that's come out, you know, because they've now learned that, oh, they're going to catch a disease. Mm. Oh my goodness. They're going to somehow catch this and they're going to start, you know, end up in the gutter somewhere. I've seen, because all the movies they saw in the nineties was that all the shows that, you know, unless it was a funny wisecracking one, it was a person who was suffering, you know, from the disease, you know, you heard about Matthew Shepard, you saw the movie Philadelphia, every movie that you saw, you know, was something that ended negatively for the person that was LGBT. So now when my child comes out, I'm afraid. And so it's really more of a fear and it causes the parents to say, no, you can't be anything but, you know, because, and, you know, I think that was the case my mother. And I think, you know, she's grown to know, you know, I, one of the biggest wake up calls we had in the Christian community was uh, Bethel in 2015, the shooting of the people praying. Mm -hmm. And then the very next year, Pulse. And so, you know, I look, and Pulse happened on my birthday on June 12, 2016. And Bethel, the shooting happened in June, 2015. And I said, now, isn't that amazing that no matter where, you can talk about safety. Let's not hide behind, I'm scared anymore because I could have been at the club or I could have been at church. And either way, I wasn't, I, you know, anything can happen in either one of those places. So let's not blame the, the, the people in Pulse for being gay and being killed. If you're not gonna blame the people in Bethel, you know, for being, well, why would they be Christian? And Nobody says that. So let's not say that because they were in Pulse living their truth, something where that led to this. No. And I think that was a wake-up call for a lot of people. That's interesting you say that because I remember um, when Pulse happened um, and the next day I was listening to the radio and um, the uh, radio host was talking about it and she said she had people calling her like why are you talking about this on a Christian radio station and she was mm -hmm. like these are people you yeah. know and just kind of like when you said oh they were sinning in the club and doing these things and, and as you mentioned it could happen anywhere you yeah. know in church and the you year before it literally happened yeah it's like it in schools just prime target what are you talking about the kids shouldn't have been learning this mm -hmm. you know you never blame anyone else for being where they are except for in these type of environments yeah. that's the only time that supposedly if they had not been living their truth then they would be alive well if the pastor wasn't i mean this is it's just ridiculous right. and again it just keeps feeding this narrative as if people deserve what would happen and now none of these people deserve it I had a parent ask me, uh, are mothers always right? And I said, no, uh, but your heart may be in the right place, but not your words. Yes. And so in, in certain instances, working with the LGBTQ youth and, and things like that, um, through Safe Space Nova, then with GPMC, is them having outlets and people to talk to when they don't have those words of affirmation from their parents you know people who labored with them birthed them you know gave life to them and just because your life paved out a different way than they had mapped out right and what's 
what's the problem? Because, you know, I grew up with, you get, ma- you get married before you have, you know, intercourse and things like that. Then you come and find out that they won't do it. They were not. You know, and so it's like, okay, <laughs> what, what, is, what is going on here? It's now you learn, but you learn when you get older and then you hear those stories. Like, so you impose on me some things you won't even do yourself. And that's always the way, right? I mean, you, you know, you do the math on certain things, you know, you have an uncle who's 50 and you have grandparents who've been, they're celebrating their 48th, you know, wedding. Like it's, these things happen, right? You know, I look at my great grandfather was married my great grandmother and he was 20 and she was 12. This was in the 1930s, or 19, in the 1920s. Um, she was born 19, so she was born 1917. So whatever, it was 1928, I believe, or something like that, or 1929. So that's the time. Now, again, if you look back on it now, you know, you're like, oh my God, look at this. But understand, you know, and she went on to get her master. She went on to, you know, be a teacher for 40 years. She was actually the rough one in the family. My grandfather was the sweet one. So it was like very backwards from what you would think like color purple. But still in all, this was a crazy then. Well, these things happen, right? You know, and so what, with the, what you see in the movies, this was not the case. You know, we're learning so much about what people went through behind the scenes. That's some of the, the best shows that we get to see now is behind the scenes, what really happened. In, this because what they showed us versus what and here's the fun fact this is what kills our kids mentally because they're trying to live a life that nobody is living not even the person promoting it Mm -hmm. the rappers cars are rented you know the you know like these houses are rented they don't own this, they don't own their masters, they don't own anything, and you know in a year this rapper's broke, but they're trying to live it. Well, same thing here, you're trying to live a life, you get a wife, you have a kid, you force this, and then lo and behold, 20 years later, you're realizing this is just not me, and now you, you're 20 years into a marriage, and now everyone's like, if you have been allowed to be true to yourself early, then you would have saved a lot of people a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people have to grapple with, you know, you're going to have to, and if they are grappling with it now. And that's a, that's a good thing. We are having the conversation. Right. Thank you. Um, we talked a lot about family, uh, with mm-hmm. our family and uh, yours as well. Um, now, we think of family, as you mentioned, uh, you think of community as well. So how did you first enter the LGBTQ community? As far as did you join an organization? Did you show up at Brixton and say I'm here? I mean, how did you yeah. enter the community? That was not so slow and steady. I actually, you know, I I did visit a club or two, and that wasn't well. No, so again, this is Amber's teaching. So Amber, um, told me that she would tell me about, you know. So Amber, sorry, Amber became president or very active in Lavender Law, which is uh, the, um, I think, a gay organization at, at, at Howard that was focused on LGBTQ students. And they would have meetups. 
And a couple of their meetups were at this thing, this gorilla club pop-up thing that would post. The idea of the gorilla pop-up was that it we would gorilla style gather at a straight place, straight club, and just kind of take over, making it into a gay club that night by just showing up. And so that night it happened to be uh, pin social, you know, and we showed up there and she said, I want you to show up. The members who do come, they'll, they may know something, but it's not the whole school. I said, you know what? And so I showed up and it was fine. And had a couple people were like, hmm, and then nothing more. But then I kind of, you know, it was good to find a community there, but then I realized, you know, I'm old enough. I need to really figure out what I want to, you know, what I want to do. And so I joined some meetup groups and I started, I joined the gay uh, flag football league um, that was sponsored, I think, you know, you know, through a, a bar in the town. I um, also, I finally met up with uh, two people, Jordan uh, Costin and his now husband, Charles Sumter. And they're the first actual gay couple that normalized this for me. Um, so if Amber and Denise are my gay moms, then I guess Jordan and Charles are my gay dads because they, their relationship, because this is the first time I've seen one that was, that was going, that had been entrenched and it's not a movie. I'm watching them live life. I'm watching them work, you know, and, you know, this was in 2014. And so it was a, you know, it was a very interesting to watch their journey and to see how they did it. And to learn little things, you know, how to operate. Because when you grow up in the South, you grow up being a man. So I get the door for my woman. I, mm -hmm. I pay the check. I do all of this. And I'm a chivalrous person. Well, yeah. what happens when there's two men? Mm -hmm. And you both were raised similarly. Now, certain things you're going to have to give up. Being a man is more than just being chivalrous and picking up a check, right? So they demonstrated that for me. And they still demonstrate that for me. Now that they're married, they still demonstrate that. And it's a blessing to watch their journey. And I took a lot from that. So what I did was I went and found mentors, is what you I guess you can say is I found people to to model what I what I was looking for. You know, the good, the bad, the rough. Mm -hmm. And and that's and so I and I I tell that to anyone. I said you know, going to a club may not be the best bet to, to get into this life. You know, you may need to go and volunteer somewhere where you can have a conversation, join an organization where you can learn, find some gay and bisexual and lesbian and transgender and question and quit. Find people who have been in the life long enough and not just people who are, you know, one of the issues we don't have, one of the things we don't have in this community a lot is mentorship. People who are 20 are mentoring people who are 18, who are mentoring people 16. It's like, we, for some reason, and we know why, we're missing a lot of our community who would have been around but for the disease. So we, when we find those elders who have not only made it, but have a story to tell, we should listen. Right. And so we find those, and now I have found several of those. And that's one of the reasons that I've become encouraged to, 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 to live out and to become that for, for some others. So I found mentors, I found community that they had and I latched on, I became a part of it. And then I began to create my own community as well. Awesome. Uh, you mentioned you did flag football. Mm -hmm. How was that? It was a very interesting experience. So I played football in high school. 
Um, you, you know, I was a defensive lineman, and I was actually uh, a defensive lineman, and I did offensive guard. That was, you know, football, high school, and then the flag football portion. I was like, I can try that. It was pretty good. They were intense. You know, and, and part of the reason I was in law school at the time, so it was rough. They were practicing in the weekday and they were practicing different places and it was just rough making it happen for practice and they would do it on. And then another issue, they would have their games on Sunday morning. And so Sunday morning is church. So that was another issue, but it was a very good time. It was a good time. Unfortunately, it wasn't a community I needed right then because it was predominantly and almost from what I experienced, 90% white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I didn't, so I needed a community that had intersection because I wasn't just gay. That's not what you are. We have that dual duality of being black and gay in this country. Mm -hmm. And so I need a community that understands that walk because as we see every day, you know, you can be a black man, it does not matter. They don't ask you questions. Um, they just, you know, they shoot first. So you have to deal with that. As a gay black man, I have to deal with being a black man as well. I can't just, you know, rainbows and and then be okay. Yeah, that that is amazing that you mentioned it. And that's why I wanted to ask about the football because people say because you're gay you can't get nitty and gritty in the ground oh, yeah. oh, they, you get yeah. your nails dirty you they were rough you don't, you don't play football you don't play basketball but you can watch the cheerleading on the side so that stereotype that you know we are not into sports or know nothing about sports and things like that um it's just i don't know i hopefully one day let me tell you something one of the things that and we're going to get to this, I think, with GPMC. But one of the things that I've been promoting is this series that we started uh, a year ago. Uh, we've all we have always been there. We've always been here. Mm. People think being gay is new. We just chronicled a gay boxer who was the first Latin champion, um, Panama L. Brown, in the 1930s and 40s. We chronicled gay, um, you know basketball players, you know, Jason Collins. These people have all, you, they just haven't been out because of the time period, but they have been there. And, you know, so nothing is out of bounds. So when we played flag football, it was real football. I mean, rough, you know, you block with your shoulders, you pull a flag and sometimes people fall, you know, and that's just the way it works. And it was nothing different than if you played any rec flag football league anywhere and they went to the championship several times I was on a team called burnt orange you were named by a color and then you chose your uh your colors and so we we were named we colored burnt orange by a sign so we named ourselves the boatners after the uh, then speaker of the house John Boatner so uh, something funny but but basically that's you know that is a misconception that you know and, and I think we're breaking all of that you've seen a lot of people be comfortable enough to come out and live authentically no matter what their job is. So uh, you mentioned about the gorilla pop-ups mm -hmm. and uh, flag football uh, for gay men, but you noticed that um, majority of them were white. Um, so I want to dig deep into or touch on uh, the gay professional men of color. Okay. So 
since you started the Gay Professional Men of Color DC, how has the LGBTQ community changed? Or have you noticed a change? Not necessarily that's connected with your group, but since mm -hmm. you started it, have you seen growth within the LGBTQ community in the DMV? I think I have. I, you know, so many of the organizations that, so the so many of the organizations that we have are based in legacy issues. So when I was ending my law school career, about to graduate, again, I had this community that I had developed um within the community and you know i'm like okay so my my charles is a consultant at this and he has a master's in this jordan works for here he has a master's in this you know marco has a has a degree in master's we have another friend who not only just degree but is you know a high level um uh, official who uh, works in the state department and travels with the secretary of state we had so we had all of these people represented and their life was so full like their their relationships they, everything was normal and i said well this is a great community that i have developed for myself so as i graduated i began to um and i'm and i want to and i want to correct something the name of the group at howard was not lavender law lavender law is a national organization that's affiliated with that's a, that's a conference that's affiliated with the National LGBT Bar Association, which I'm a member, but it was called Outlaw. So Outlaw at Howard. Um, but Outlaw, even at Howard, was run by Amber and, and then several other uh, lesbian members. And you had very few gay men in there, just gay or anything, men. And so I did, on the last year there, I did this brunch where I said, the men of Outlaw brunch. And we met at level one, which doesn't exist anymore, but level one under Cobalt. And we had a brunch and then, you know, we had a long night, but it was fun. I said, well, I mean, most of these people showed up were men from the law school and then some were friends. And so as I uh, graduated, I said, now where is this organization? You know, and I looked at one organization and it was, you know, based in HIV awareness. I said, this is, this is important. Uh, and I looked at another organization. I was the director in this one, Safe Space, and they were based in helping to prevent teen suicide, and that was important. And you know, another organization was based in teen homelessness and runaways, and which was important. I'm a former teacher; it's important. I said, "So, where is the organization of men that are working to help each other network, create their brand, become?" you know, better in their careers and better businessmen, better all around. I'm a former member of the 100 Black Men of Baton Rouge. So we had, I know Black men have organizations like this. So I'm like, well, where is that organization? And I didn't find it. I didn't see one existing that had, that was not linked to one of the negative legacy issues. So we founded one um, informally in 2016. You know, I started a group, Gay Prince Man of Color, called, I knew that I needed the name to say what we were. Let's explain it. And then, you know, um, how it came about was, how we became informal and we really just kind of met up. We did brunches, things like that. A lot of good members, a lot of good people we met. And 
I had at the same time, I had some, I went to Louisiana State University undergrad and I had a mentee, Devon Wade, who was studying his first PhD at Columbia simultaneously while I was in law school. He's younger than me, but because I stayed out of school for long, we were, you know, what and what. And he was also coming out and at the same time. And so we met up and I told him about the organization I was thinking about, you know, and we would stay in touch. And then he decided to do his dissertation in his hometown of Houston. Devon was raised by his grandparents. He's a twin. He was raised by his grandparents. Both his parents were incarcerated. He, you know, went to LSU, became a leader there. He was one of my good mentees. And you know how you have the moment where you pass the baton and I, he became that person and I started in, and, you know, so GPMC is kind of moving along, informal, nothing really. And then, you know, he, he goes to Texas and he's studying and he gets, he, he, he gets into a relationship or something with someone. And on the day after Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving night, maybe, the person in Texas kills him. And it was devastating, absolutely devastating. This is November, 2017, absolutely devastating to us in the community. And part of what was supposed to happen, this again, when you don't do things on time, November, in the second week in November, I had told the group, because they went on the, the little cabin retreat, and I said to them, I think I'm going to incorporate this. And I also noted to Tavon, I'm going to incorporate this and have, we can have a chapter here and he can be there. And then he gets killed and you just don't know. So GPMC came out of a labor of love that if I, I didn't form it in time for him to be a part. So what was it that the person who killed him, who was also, I think, a gay man, maybe closeted, I don't know what the issue was. And the person who killed him ended up killing himself weeks later. Um, tragedy all around so i didn't so the first event that we formed we formed around an event where it's like we have a program that we want to do that is focused not on domestic violence not on you know anything else it was focused on gay love and color what does it look like for gay men to be in color because we had never really saw programming on that what does it look like so we found people who have been married for, you know, who have been either married or together for five or more years. And in the gay community, you know, that's, 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 that's a long time. It's 50 years. Yeah, <laughs> black gay community especially. And, you know, we, both couples on the stage have been together for 10 years. One was married then, the other, both of them were married then, I think. And they both, and it was a great program. And that program was the launch of the in of the formalization of gay freshmen of color so founded in january 20 january 2018 and the program took place a week later um but that was and it was based in finding answers so we won't have any more divines who had so much promise but it was cut short because a person couldn't be their authentic self and didn't know what love looks like and said if i can't have you no one will so that's where gay professional men got its foundation and um, and we've had some great men that affiliate with us over the years. And it's not for everyone. People always ask about the professional piece. We keep that word in because professional does not have anything to do with a degree. But one thing I've learned is that as gay men, we know how to code switch. You know, many times we will be in the closet for years and code switch between at home versus in the streets. 
So we wanted people who could do that professionally, who could do that on a level that was more than just clubbing versus, it was, I can go out and party, then we can do a service event. Then we can do a, uh, then we can do a program. Then we can do a mentorship. That was important to find men who knew how to do that and to show the next group of kids that we that they can be that that they can be authentic self and still get the job done you do what you said you're going to do you show up you support each other and some of the men in this group have become best friends and really have become each other's family and some men who've even, who've even left the group but stayed in contact they're still family and it's amazing because the network doesn't end when you when you don't no longer affiliate you know there's some organizations that I'm not affiliated with anymore, but I'm still very close to some of those people. And that's going to be the case. And it's a seed that's planted. And some members have moved away and they've started similar groups or they've you know, found similar groups of men. And that's important for us to have. We need to have that. And so that's our role that we play. We're not a legacy base and we don't, we're not even issue based. We base the programming that we do on what's going on in the lives of our members, which means the community. Because it's, it's, it's affecting our members. Chances are our community is suffering with this too. So we base our programming around what they're going through. So some of the programming that we've done gave professional etiquette. Mm -hmm. Little tidbits that you learn, well, others learn, they may grow up more fluent and they learn through life. Their parents would take them on to balls and functions and things. They learn how to shake a hand here, where to put your name tag, how to have a 30 second spill conversation to get, they learn that. Others, their parents didn't have that. None of my family were attorneys. I didn't know certain things. So that program aimed at that. We had a program that, you know, you know very well, am I there now? <laughs> because, and that was a very big program for us because there's another question that we as, so, who would have thought it being black men professional then people say you're not gay enough i didn't even you don't even you don't even do the gay thing you know you don't you know because we don't come up with the i get well some of us do i guess but come up with the quick snaps and the shade and it's like what is gay why does it have to look like what you see in this in on in a box somewhere so we questioned that and we brought people that represented different people very people were very fluid and they were there and then we had people who were very business and and they were there and they talked about what they have to do and go through not just in the white community as black men but in the majority community i mean and as far as in the black community and in both so you you walk the line um we've had other programs again that touch on topics the closure of black predominantly black venues lgbt that service lgbtq especially ones that are owned by black people used to be several clubs in dc apparently that were owned by, and they're no longer here. Even the white gay venues are closing. So what's happening there? What are the cities doing to support them through COVID? You know, we talked about that. And most recently, you know, we did a program where we spoke to people who, um, I guess, were, were trying to learn about branding themselves and, you know, getting into business, starting a small business, options and opportunities that they could have partnering with chain, like groups like we're partnering with the Chamber of Commerce and other small businesses, you know, and they do their little seminars on 
which form you should be filing with your taxes as a small business, how to incorporate little things that wasn't being covered, or at least it was sporadically being covered, you know, but the predominant thing was legacy issues, you know, wrap up if you have this, take this pill, yeah. help this homeless, and those are all needed, but then the conversation needs to grow, you know, and that's, that's what we have, what we're here to do. Awesome. Um, you kind of touched on the closures of the black bars and gay bars and even those who, white bars. Mm -hmm. um, how has COVID, uh, since you're like one of the first interviews we're doing post-pandemic, uh, mm -hmm. um, how has COVID uh, affected GPMC and how did you pivot uh, from doing the in-person events to doing online? So COVID has hit almost every organization like ours like a ton of bricks. One of the reasons people join organizations such as ours is to get fellowship, friendship, and family. And so Zoom just does not cut it. And so we've had, we have a number of people who have, you know, explained that they just, you know, they weren't able to meet us and they kind of drifted. And so it's hard, it's been difficult, you know, and now we have, of course, members who come in and replace, but it's just finding ways to get and bring community. So we started doing Zoom meetings, of course, like everyone else, we would try to do Zoom happy hours. And that faded quickly because you can't, you don't get the full interpersonal interaction. You don't get the side conversations. You don't get the pre-program startup stuff. You don't get, you just everything, you know, if you close the Zoom, everybody's in it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been difficult. So we've tried to find ways to meet up, whether it was, you know, we had a, a picnic in the park, which was great. You know, we had events that were outside. We also had, you know, we tried to do, you know, book clubs that would be able to meet up and just kind of talk about things. So different venues for people to find the fellowship. Because one thing people, that's the reason they join is they don't, it's not just to serve and because that's important, but the fellowship piece, because that's what keeps your skin in the game. Yeah. So we've, we've had to find ways to do that. And uh, I'm in a number of, of other organizations and all of them have suffered. You know, I myself, because everything for work is a Zoom, and then now I do Zoom for GPMC. I myself have not attended many events by my other organizations that have been Zoom because I just am Zoomed out. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and it's hard because you want to support, but you're just like, I just can't sit on camera again mm -hmm. trying to have fun and recreate something that's not there. So no one had any the, the real answers for it. And, um, but we are, we are coming back. You know, everybody's kind of reimagining what things are going to look like. Um, the one of the reasons we fought for bars and we had a program on bars is because people think about bars and venues and social places, and they were not for gay people, especially. They were not just places to come and hang out and drink. This is where you found family. Mm -hmm. You didn't just find them, you know, at a, you know, you found them at these places. These are your best friends. These became sometimes your partners. These became sometimes, you know, your saviors. 
Right. You know, that's where you found it. And because you couldn't find it other places, you know, you could not go home and just find And that's still the case for many people. I really think I want to reassert this. If you live in certain places like D.C., like New York, like Atlanta, like Charlotte, you may not understand that in certain other places, it's not like that. You are still back in 30 years ago in certain places. You're wondering why states keep passing laws that do restrictions. Because there's, you're, you know, Atlanta may be Atlanta, but Georgia is still Georgia. You step outside, yeah. You know, you step outside of it. You know, the Northern Virginia may be Northern Virginia, but you go past Richmond. You know, the situation that happened years ago in when they marched with tiki torches at night, like a clan, mm -hmm. that happened in Virginia. Yeah. And not too far from where we, where we are, where we're thinking we're, you know, liberally living. Mm -hmm. So these places are not going away. These people are fighting the culture war and trying to save the time. So we need to be just as urgent in saving our culture because our rights were defined basically by a court of nine people. Mm -hmm. And understand that those people come and go, and when one dies, that can change the entire dynamic. For black people, we have we need we've learned that right. Mm -hmm. In 1955 and 54, we had the Brown versus Board of Education decision from the U.S. Supreme Court declaring that school segregation was unconstitutional. Then Brown too mandated that schools desegregated and gave them uh, and, and and pushed it. All throughout the 60s, you had Supreme Court case after Supreme Court case, including the Loving decision that, that allowed marriage between a black person and a white person. You had the privacy. You had all these different rights come out of this time period from a court. Mm -hmm. Then the court changed. So suddenly, schools didn't really have to desegregate. They, could just, they just couldn't segregate. Now, what does that mean? There's a difference, right? I have to desegregate versus you can't segregate. There's a difference. Meaning, if for the last 50 years we've made we've mandated that this community only allow white people, well, in the later courts then said, well, you can't stop a black person from moving in, but you don't have to bring them in. Well, what ends up happening? They remain white and segregated. And as long as they don't overtly say, you can't come in because you're black. Well, you can't come in because you don't live in this district. Why don't you live in this district? Because you want, your parents won't allow to live in this district and you can't afford to live in this district and we're gonna, and you won't even get a job in this district because we're gonna make sure. So then here, we can legally say you can't come to this school. Well, black people learned that lesson that when the court changed, rights became in play. Gay and you know, LGBT folks, we got a lot of rights in the last couple of years. And the author of a lot of those opinions, Lawrence versus Texas, a lot of those opinions was Justice Kennedy. Justice Kennedy is no longer on the court. So what does that mean for our rights? This is why our organizations are important. The moment we let our guard down, they can put anybody on that court and they can rewrite and say, well, we, you know, this wasn't truly a good decision. There is no right to marriage. I mean, it really, and the next thing you know, we're back at square one. So 
the fight must continue. And that's why organizations like DPMC are important. So we have to survive, the, we had to survive the pandemic because we're still needed. And so we still, we still do programming that enriches the community because that's why we're needed. Awesome. Uh, that's very important, as you said, to get involved, not to be comfortable because as right. you see, decisions can change. I mean, look how many times they are trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, that's like a prime that. example. And that's why it's important to vote and to be involved in what is going on, not get too comfortable that I have it now I can keep it. You know, no, like it's every day and for the next generation. Uh, before I wrap up, um, what goals do you want to see GPM, GPM, GPMC excuse me, accomplish within the next five years? So I, I, I hope to have GPMC in a position where it becomes a, a major player in the happenings in our community and becomes kind of a, a, you know, one of the groups that people go to to kind of get an understanding of what's going on in our community you know, holistically. You know, one of the issues, like I said, is some organizations are so bound by legacy issues that, you know, we don't even speak to them until June. Just mm -hmm. like with some black organizations, we don't even speak to them until February. Yeah. And we want to say that we are, we are intersectional group and we've been around. So when something happens in the black community like George Floyd, we can speak on it. When something happens in the LGBT community, such as Pulse, we can speak on it, right? Because it affects us all. Mm -hmm. And we have to know that this is important. And we wanna be that group that kind of stands at the forefront and ready to you know, speak to people at various levels. You know, One of the things that we, we do is we want our members to feel empowered to, to run for office, we want them to feel empowered to go and lobby. We want them to feel empowered to go and push the vote, you know, and meet people and meet businesses where they are. So if you're going to be a business and you're going to put up a pride flag and yet, you know, your employees can't get parental leave if they're two dads, you know, they can't, you know, get uh, assistance, you know, maternity, they can't get certain assistance that married, the other employees can get, you know, are, if they're black and they can't get certain help, we want to be that, that group that kind of brings attention to that. And to give, and the most important is we want to be a group that people can see as a positive piece that other groups can follow and, and, and kids who are now, you know, 15 or whatever, they can grow up through this time and see, okay, I think I need to, I, you know, one of the issues UPMC faced and this is one of our reasons that we, we love to talk to, to younger people. So right now, a lot of colleges in the area, they're very good at their diversity stuff. They allow students to kind of, you know, they do their thing, say, yeah, be out, be proud, be everything. And then they go for a job interview. And they get to the job interview and the person who's there is the is a baby boomer or early generation Xer, and they're like, yeah. You don't fit here. And they won't tell you that. They'll just smile because they know how they've been told by HR what not to say. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why can't we get high? There's a LGBT youth and LGBT young, young professionals have a high rate of unemployment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people really understand that. And people don't get that. They still suffer from the same stigma. Well, I don't want anybody in here 
that has, you know, that wants to be called, you know, them and, you know, they don't want to use the Mr. Gender and they, they don't want to use, they need to use the man's bathroom and because that's other and important and somehow, and so they don't, they don't get, and so we're here to say, you know, here's how you can do a job in here's what you can write on your resume here's how you can be your authentic self while still fitting in the business because the court has said you know all they have to do is make a reasonable accommodation for certain things lgbt is not one of them mm -hmm. so they don't they can't discriminate against, well now they can't that's a new that's a new thing right Boston case it's new that you can't discriminate against people because based on uh, sexual orientation that's new that was last year and some stuff has to be defined. In some states, you could literally tell somebody, nah, you, we don't practice, we don't allow people who are gay to break mm -hmm. your life. So again, how to be your authentic self while fitting into the organization and then opening doors, right? So as a black man, when I walk into my law firm, I'm, to my knowledge, the only out gay black man in my office, at least in my, in my definitely my practice group. So what does that mean? Well, let me tell you about a DC Black Pride. Let me tell you about Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about coming out. Let me tell you about these other things that are not mainstream pride events that you see all the time, you know, that you may want to invest in because there are good candidates there. You know, you know, this this organization is doing a job fair. How about we send some people? At the last firm I went to, I got an award, 40 under 40. And we weren't even sending anybody to work that job there. And it was like, and they said, well, we'll send you this. I said, you're not sending me. I got an award. So, you know, they're going to pay for this. But I said that to say that we, we give people, some people, we, we think that they know more than they know. And so if we're not in the room to tell them and to tell our story, who's going to speak for us? Mm -hmm. So when, when, you, when I walk into this, firm or when I walk into this job, I am representing a whole race, a whole sexuality sometimes. Like and I understand that. And that's the that's the burden that we have. And people say, well you don't have to do this. Yes, we do. I mean that's just the way things are right now. And hopefully in a couple of years you have enough of us in these spaces that it won't seem that way. But right now when you're still at one or two out of several hundred I was clerking for the uh, U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia last year, and that's a part of the D.C. Circuit. And within the D.C. Circuit, each judge gets about three to four clerks. So that makes about 118 to 120 something law clerks just in this circuit. And to my knowledge, there were five of us, five black clerks at that time. Five. These clerks are the people who get, who later get nominated for high courts. So if all you've learned from is from the perspective of this type of person who has this experience that doesn't know about your experience as a black person, they're gonna rule, every judge rules based on their life experience really, they do. And Yes, they are, they rule based on the law, but they have to apply the law and they use their experience to apply the law. Otherwise, we could use robots to read the law. Right. So 
GPMC is there to help those people get in those positions, right? Whether, you know, we help one person who's, you know, thinking about running for judge or thinking about going to law school, you know, getting into a grad program, we're there to help you say, okay, here's what your essay might want to talk about. Here's what recruiters like to hear. Those little things plant the seed for the next generation of leaders, and that's where we want to be. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, you know, I was with you. I was a member and uh, the chair for the uh, Gay Professional Men of Colors Community Service and Programming Committee. And uh, I mentioned to you that when I became president of a committee at work, um, how I utilize what you taught me and what you teach others about leadership and, and build on that for my own team. Uh, so I, I do appreciate uh, you and the examples and the leaderships that you lead by. Um, That's what it's all about. I want to say, Jamal, you know, it was, you know, it was rough when you left, but then it's like, this is what's supposed to happen in a way, because now you're working with the Rainbow History Project as a voter director, you know, and you're leading that work and you're doing these things that, you know, whatever you, whatever GPMC world it played a part, that's what it was supposed to do. We have members now who are, you know, John Talee, who's a former member. He was teacher of the year. You know, he did, he was on the news for his awesome styles of teaching. And, you know, we have members who, you know, it's, it's been amazing, you know, members who are newscast, like it's just, it's amazing watching members who even when you leave, you know, whatever part we played in, 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 in that moment, that's why we, you know, we appreciate. And so um, I appreciate you, you worked hard, you did your thing, of course, with the programming and, you know, you set up things and now you're doing the thing and you're still carrying on the torch. And so I appreciate the opportunity to be here of and speak course. with you. Thank you. Before I, uh, in our uh, Or History interview, um, do you have a message that you would like to share with today's youth or to future generations that will tune in on this archives in our uh, oral history archives and click and see uh, what is the gay professional men of color? Who is Derek Petit? What message would you like to leave before we wrap up? I, I want to leave this and I've thought about this since we've talked about this is things won't just happen. Everything that's happened came about because someone made it happen and it wasn't someone superhuman. One of the greatest messages I ever heard, I was uh, in my fall semester at Howard Law School. I was ready to give up because it was not going well in my view. And I just was not, I said, I can just go back and teach. I can do something different. And the minister, Otis Moss Jr., um, who was ministering that day at my church, he preached a sermon from a scripture that read, it does not yet appear what you might be. And so if you look at me now, it does not yet appear what you might become. And so in 2013, I could have never imagined living out, living, having a partner, forming this type of organization, you know, working in this environment, working and getting to know people like yourself and other brothers and sisters. It just did not appear. But the idea is to try to stay on a course and, 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 and then reflect often. I think the other thing is to not only keep pushing up, but reflect, because you have to sometimes remember how far you've come. 
And too many of us, when we get into issues and situations, we act as though it's the first time. And you, you got to remember, you've come through a long way. You know, when you, if you graduated from anybody's school, whether it be preschool on up, that's more than your ancestors got an opportunity to do. And they all started where you started, you know, and, you know, it's amazing. You know, if you look for heroes, know that we've always been here. So Bayard Rustin, you know, James Baldwin, you know, these are people who were around at a time where you could not, you weren't supposed to live out and live as, but they lived out and they changed the course of history. Bayard Rustin planned the March on Washington. He's standing behind every speaker because he's keeping the program going, you know, and he's not as known. So it's our job to teach the youth and the future about people like that. And so one day people might teach about you and what did you do? And so keep pushing but reflect off. All right, Derek, thank you so much for joining me to do our Or History interview on behalf of the Rainbow History Project in DC. We thank you and the Gay Professional Men of Color for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, Jamal. Of course.